0: In considering the impressions the friends and followers of Jesus had of him, it seems to me that their impressions of Jesus as healer and exorcist are probably easier for contemporary men and women to believe than and and to accept than what sometimes are categorized as the nature miracles. Like, for example, the story of Jesus walking on the water of the Lake of Galilee. For one thing, we're now more aware of the connection between the mind and the body, and so we recognize the role the mind can play in the healing process. I I watched a documentary on the Russian Revolution and Tsar Nicholas. A lot of it centered on the strange and wild figure of Rasputin, who had such uh, influence over the Tsar and the Tsarina, because of his seeming ability to control the bleeding of the royal son and prince, Alexei, who suffered from hemophilia. I don't think this was just entirely in in the imagination of the Tsar and Tsarina. I I, I don't think Rasputin could actually control Alexei's uh, bleeding, but I do think Rasputin had a calming influence on the Tsarina, and that in turn, Uh, That uh, calmed Alexi, which brought the bleeding under control. We also know that a, a sense of hope increases the body's resistance to disease. Studies have shown that increasing the sense of hope among nurses on an ICU unit will increase the survival rate of the patients they are caring for not of the nurses, but of the patients. Increasing the hope of the nurses increases the survival rate of the patients. So there's no reason not to believe or not to think that a person radiating faith and hope and love might be found to be a healing presence. Understanding how ancient historians worked may also be helpful in thinking about the nature miracles for the ancient chroniclers of history. There was no carefully prescribed method of writing history, like that of the modern era in both oral and written traditions. Authors felt free uh, within limits to rearrange the chronology of events, or to engage in rhetorical elaboration in order to create interest and to bring about those aspects of the story that the author wished to emphasize, so long as they were faithful to the core truth of events. This has led many scholars to believe, and, and I agree with them that even some of the difficult to accept nature miracles may be based on actual events. For instance, in the difficult story of Jesus walking on the water, it is possible to make a case for his actually walking near the shore or in the shallows. The possibility that Peter asks uh, to join Jesus And then begins to drown uh, in the rough surf, begins to sink in the rough surf, requires no alteration to physical science. But it could have constituted a life and death crisis and an astonishing rescue by Jesus, a miracle in the ancient biblical sense. Jesus's power was seen by the disciples, not only in healing and in nature signs and wonders, but also in exorcisms. Many people today believe, of course, that demons or demon possession is just how people living in antiquity labeled various disorders, both biological and psychological Uh, a young boy, for instance, suffering uh, uh, from epilepsy, or a man running naked in a cemetery, uh, cutting himself with stones and yelling threats at those passing by. Uh, Others believe that psychological disorders and demonic possession are two separate diagnoses. Some think that what we label as mental illness is multifaceted, and that social, psychological, organic, and spiritual elements may all play a role. The psychiatrist, M. Scott Peck, had, he said, never experienced or observed a case of demonic possession. But after observing and studying two cases of exorcism, he said that what he experienced made him believe that demon possession was very real. Indeed, that he had come to believe that there is a personal and a malignant force of evil at work. In fact, in his book, People of the Lie, is the best book I have ever read on evil and diagnosing, identifying true evil among us. Graham Twelfth professor of New Testament at Regent University, in his book, Jesus the Exorcist, a contribution to the study of the historical Jesus, defined exorcism as understood in the ancient world as a form of healing use. I'm quoting here, a form of healing used when demons or evil spirits were thought to be responsible for sickness and was the attempt to control, cast out, or expel evil spiritual beings as demons from people. Twelfth says that the consensus of contemporary theologians, pastors, and church leaders is probably best summarized by this sentence from a report by the Scottish Church on the subject. We believe, uh, the report says, we believe that exorcism affects nothing that cannot be accomplished by expeditious use of medical skills, the latter including prayer, blessing, and healing procedures as the pastoral agent may have at his or her disposal. In the end, it probably doesn't make much difference. At least it doesn't to me. Whether Jesus exercised exercise uh, literal demons, or heal troubled minds and emotions. Personally, I would be just as impressed by the one as the other. And I would think that the person tormented by either would be grateful for the peace and freedom they came to regardless of what the process was called. Now, I'm going to change my focus just slightly here and consider how the titles which Jesus' friends and followers gave Jesus reflect how they experienced him and how they related him and um, how uh, those uh, titles reflected their impressions and thoughts of him. For the sake of clarity and understanding, and in order to remain consistent with the methodology i've adopted so far I will look at each name or title in light of what it would have meant uh, to them uh, to uh, to the disciples prior to Easter. I should begin um, maybe with uh, the given name of Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, Yeshua in the Hebrew, Isus uh, as it's given in Greek and Jesus in Spanish, a popular Hebrew name in the first century, which could be rendered as um, the English name, Joshua meaning salvation or he who saves his people. Although in Jesus' case the name was prophetic, we we should remember that it was a common boy's name in first century Israel. The Christ or Messiah uh, they mean the same thing, with Christ, Christos, being Greek and Messiah, Hebrew. The Christ or Messiah is someone who has been anointed, who has had perfumed oil, smeared, rubbed, or poured on them, designating or commissioning them for a particular task. The oil symbolized that the power and the authority to do uh, what needed to be done had been given to them by uh, some higher authority, by a, a priest or a king. The anointing could be for a spiritual or a peaceful vocation, or it could be for more military enterprise. It's it's not at all surprising that many first century Jews in Palestine, oppressed and under Roman occupation, uh, who were looking and hoping for uh, the Messiah to come. When they thought about the Messiah Messiah as the anointed one, A thought about a military leader sent by God, anointed by God to liberate and govern and lead the nation to victory. To say that the man Jesus was the Christ or Messiah is to say that the Father poured out, anointed the Son with the Holy Spirit to authorize and empower Jesus to carry out the work and divine purpose to which he was called. Lord, simply stated, a lord, Kyrios in the Greek, is a person with power, rank, or authority. The word Lord was used in the ancient world as a common term of respect in addressing people of wealth, authority, or status of one kind or another, like one's teacher or employer or a judge in a court of law. It was often used uh, somewhat like we use the word sir or ma'am as a sign of polite respect. Kings were regularly styled as Lord, and because of their reluctance to say or to write the name of God, the Jews frequently substituted the divine name in, in copying scripture with the word Lord, Adonai in the Hebrew using all capitals in writing Lord, uh, which indicated, again, it was being used as a substitute for the divine name, for Yahweh. As a teacher with a significant number of followers, Jesus certainly would have been addressed as Lord, as a title of respect. Kyrios, Lord, was also used as an imperial title. Augustus was not merely called Augustus or even Emperor Augustus, but as Caesar demanded to be called Kyrios or Lord. The earliest Christian confession was the utterly simple but paradoxically majestic Jesus is Lord. Successive successive Caesars Actually, had themselves deified by the Roman Senate. Set up, uh, they they set up shrines around the empire, and required a pinch of incense to be offered to them, um, usually uh, at once a year, with the oath Caesar is Lord. A little chip was then given to them when they when they made that confession, or when they swore that oath, when they. Uh, offered the incense, it said Caesar is Lord. A little ship was given them signifying that the offering to Caesar as Lord had been made and the oath had been sworn. This chip allowed trades and craftspeople to work and merchants to do business. The offense of the early Christians, which uh, resulted often in their bloody persecution was that they could not and would not say, Caesar is Lord. For post-Easter Christians, there is only one Lord to whom absolute love and allegiance and fidelity is given, and it is not Caesar or Donald Trump. Son of God, the term son of God is used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible as another way of referring to people who have a special relationship with God. The people of Israel are called sons of God. Solomon is also called son of God. In fact, the kings of Israel are called sons of God. And those who are just, who are just and who keep the teaching of the Torah are sons of God. In recognizing Jesus as the Son of God prior to Easter, the disciples would not have meant that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, but rather that Jesus stood in the imperial line. Was the expected, the hoped-for Messiah? Certainly, they thought Jesus was and that Jesus understood himself to be of a higher, more transcendent order of sonship than David or the kings of his line. In short, prior to Easter, what the friends of Jesus saw was that Jesus had a unique relationship to God of which Jesus was conscious. The British New Testament scholar, but but we don't want to get magical about that or... Um, uh, so ethereal uh, that that we're looking at things from our perspective rather than their pre-Easter perspective. The British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I I think, has a realistic and an elegant explanation of this consciousness of Jesus and his sonship. Wright um, Wright writes, (laughs) this, Jesus did not, in other words, know that he was God in the same way one knows that one is male or female, hungry or thirsty, or that one ate an orange an hour ago. His knowledge was of a more risky but perhaps more significant sort, like knowing one is loved. One cannot prove it except by living it. Jesus' prophetic vocation thus included within it the vocation to attempt certain tasks. Certain tasks which, according to Scripture, Yahweh had reserved for himself. He would take upon himself the role of messianic shepherd, knowing that Yahweh had claimed that role as his own. Jesus would perform the saving task which Yahweh had said he alone could achieve. Jesus would do what no messenger, no angel, but only the arm of Yahweh, the presence of Israel's God, could accomplish. As a part of this human vocation, grasped in faith, sustained in prayer, tested in confrontation, organized over in further prayer, Uh, Agonized over in further prayer and doubt, and uh, implemented in action, Jesus believed he had to do and to be for Israel and the world that which, according to Scripture, only Yahweh could do and be. Son of Man. Son of Man, both as a concept and a title, is derived from the seventh chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, in which the prophet Daniel envisions the ancient of days seated on a throne, and one like the Son of Man, is brought to him and given an eternal kingdom or dominion. This takes place in the heavenly world or dimension that the Son of Man, um, uh, let me back up and say that a little differently, That, that this takes place in the heavenly world or dimension, and that the Son of Man comes with the clouds, and the very use of the word like, he is like the Son of Man, shows that he has no exact equation with earthly humanity. He represents divine majesty, blessing, and dominion. And in this, as well as in saving the people, symbolizes all messianic ideas, beliefs, and hopes. Son of David, Psalms 2, um, 18, 20, 21, 45, 72, 101, 110, 132, and 144, 1 through 11, uh, all are often classified as royal psalms because of the prominence they give to the king. In fact, It is thought that they are likely songs of worship used at the king's coronation, as somewhat like our uh, having uh, a a clergy person say uh, the invocation at the uh, president's inauguration. These psalms express the idea that the rule of the king is guaranteed by divine decree. The coronation oracle of Psalm 2-7 assures the king, You are my son, this day I have begotten you, Psalm 2-7. In similar fashion, in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel seven fourteen, God promises David concerning Solomon and each king that will come in the Davidic line, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Uh, This is obviously talking about more than just a a close relationship with God uh, and the relationship that the king will have with God. In Exodus 4, Hosea 11, and Psalm 80, the people as a whole are called the sons of God. The king is called the son of God because the king represents and embodies the people. That is, in fact, what it means to be the king. The king is concerned with the needs of the people, is one with them in their joys and sorrows, bears their burdens, is their champion. This is the idea in the story of of David uh, fighting Goliath, which is not merely the story of a young man fighting and defeating a giant of a warrior, but of David, who more by faith and raw and personal courage, champions the people who are afraid So that young David is more kingly than Saul, who actually wears the crown of Israel. Jesus is therefore the son of David in that he is the son of God, championing the people um, as one of them, uh, bears them and their burdens on his heart, and cares for them and shepherds them like David the shepherd king. Although, uh, it is important and symbolic that Jesus is in the, um, is, is in the line, the, the physical line of the Davidic, uh, Davidic monarchy. Resurrected. Marcus Borg um, frequently asserted that after Jesus' death, His disciples clearly experienced him as alive. I once asked Borg in an email whether Jesus' friends and followers experienced him as alive after the crucifixion because Jesus was in fact alive or whether it was merely a subjective, psychological, uh, delusional experience. Borg, who was as good at evasion as any politician, replied, with a good philosophical answer. Borg said he had no idea what the ontological state of Jesus might now be. Does he exist in the sense that we exist, queried Borg in his email response. Does he differ ontologically from Lord Krishna? I have no idea what I am sure I have no idea, he, he wrote. What I am sure about is that one of the ways that God, the sacred, is known by Christians is in a presence that people name Jesus. And I think that the Trinity can be understood to mean that there are three primary ways in which Christians know God as the creator God of Israel, as Jesus, and as the ever-present Spirit. Whether I slash we can say more than than that is unclear to me, he said. What I am certain about is the followers of Jesus experienced him after his death and as one with God, a divine reality. It was the kind of experience that led to the exclamation, my Lord and my God. I did not find Borg's response entirely satisfying at the time, but it nevertheless fits well with the line of thought I am following here. That is, I cannot prove to myself or to anyone else beyond all reasonable mathematical doubt that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. But I can maintain with great confidence what the theologically liberal Borg noted. Jesus' followers experienced him as very much alive after his crucifixion. More than that, they claim not only to have experienced him as alive, whatever that means, but to have personally seen him, talked with him, encountered him. I will express my own beliefs regarding the resurrection shortly, but for now, I simply reiterate the friends and followers of Jesus believed that although he was crucified and buried on Friday, he was alive, not only as a good feeling or metaphorically, but in a way ordinary people consider as real, and was with them in the early morning garden and in the locked and bolted upper room that Sunday in Jerusalem and on the road to Emmaus, and later by the Sea of Galilee. Well, I have reached the outer limits of my time, so I will conclude this reflection uh, quickly for now. And in the next episode, I will explore the experience of Christ uh, as the uh, Pantocrator, the Cosmic Christ.